Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Last week we looked at Jesus being on the cross and his crucifixion and all the events that took place during that time and how as Jesus hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, being the sacrifice of God, the Lamb of God, the Passover, if you will, for all of us. It says that after that, after he died, that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who were both very religious men, they were, they were members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders of the time. And they were both very quiet in their expression of that love and devotion to Jesus until that day, until that moment when Jesus died and they finally, these two brothers, these two men who love the Lord, they take, they, they jeopardize their own selves and now and not being able to take part of the Passover celebration because of their defilement that they picked up from literally taking Jesus off the cross. According to the law, they were disqualified from really serving. And so uh, that's what happened. And so now Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who were previously silent witnesses, are no longer silent at all. In fact, their devotion to Christ is now known not only to Pilate, but to everyone else as these two men joined together to take Jesus off the cross. And let me suggest to you that taking Jesus off the cross was not an easy thing to do. Jesus wasn't some thin man who was just kind of frail and didn't have any substance. No, he was a carpenter, remember. And so he was a man's man. He was... I, would imagine, I don't know how much he weighed, but he was not, you know, this effeminate thing that a lot of times our, uh, the caricature of Jesus is portrayed as. I don't believe that for an instant. Jesus was a substantial man. And now Nicodemus and Joseph, they take him down, being themselves now bloodied from having taken Christ down and then wrapping him with ointments and spices and then wrapping him in the cloths and, and then Joseph taking him, taking Jesus into a tomb that was very nearby and it was the tomb that we know of today. And he took him in there, his own tomb that was for himself because he was a very wealthy man. He put Jesus in there. And now notice, so he's in the tomb for... Three days. Now, one thing you have to understand is that even a half a day, you know, some people say, well, he wasn't really in there for three days, but he really was, because according to the Jewish mind, even a portion of a day is considered a day. So whether it was a full 36 or what is it, full 72 hours, whatever it is, um, is that right? No, 36. I, I, no, wait, it, what is it? It's 72, isn't it? Good Lord. See, this is why I'm not a math major. So the full 72 hours, whether he was in there or not, for, it doesn't really matter. He was there for three days. And then he arose. And, and this is what we're looking at today. So let's just read the first 18 verses of this chapter, and then we'll get right into it. Notice, it says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, 
They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. And so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then the disciples went away again to their homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. (laughs) And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher, And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. To her. What a wonderful passage. Uh, Just the Lord Jesus Christ revealing himself to a woman whom he had delivered. Uh, out of her seven demons. She was possessed of seven demons, and Jesus delivered her from that demonic activity. And so Mary was a, a woman with a great amount of love. Didn't he say, the, those who are forgiven much love much? And she was one of those persons. She loved Jesus because she was forgiven much, and he had done so much for her. And it's interesting that she was the first one that Jesus revealed himself to, a woman. And Mary Magdalene, not even his own mother, but this woman who was completely uh, abased and now shining in the glory of Jesus Christ, knowing that he was her Lord. Now, as we get to this passage today, as we have read, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most significant event. It is, not only in history, but in eternity. Yes, even more significant than Jesus' birth, his crucifixion even, and even the rapture of the church. This event is the epicenter of all of those events and would not have any significance without the resurrection. And let me share why I believe that. So why is the resurrection more significant than Jesus' birth? Well, if Jesus did not fulfill those prophecies of the Old Testament 
concerning his death and resurrection, then his birth would have no significance either, would it? And he would be no different than any other figure in history who was trying to make a name for himself. So the fact that he was resurrected, defeating death and hell, and in a new body, fulfilling the scriptures, that is what was the most significant thing. Even more so than the crucifixion. So why is the resurrection more significant than the crucifixion? Well, the miracle of the resurrection was the proof of Jesus' power over the grave and thus fulfilling those Old Testament prophecies. Remember that miracles are always given to bring importance or to confirm the truth that is spoken. Whenever you see miracles in the Bible, oftentimes, more often than not, they, 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 they come after what was spoken, and the miracle is to confirm what that, word, what that word was and the significance of that word. Miracles are never given just to tantalize us, to entertain us. They're never meant to do that because if Jesus only claimed to die for our sins but did not rise from the grave in his resurrection body, again, having defeated death and hell, then we would have no confidence or the assurance of salvation and resurrection and eternal life. The resurrection was the exclamation point to the crucifixion. The exclamation point When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it, and he said it boldly and loudly. You remember that even in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, Peter, as he is delivering this sermon in front of thousands of people, in which 3,000 at least gave their heart to Christ that very day, he said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, and you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, you have crucified him and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then he quotes Psalm 16, For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad." Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. And then Peter goes on and he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of this patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this very day. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would rise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out, on th- poured out this, which you now see and hear. And so it was the exclamation point to the crucifixion. And again, so very important. Because think of how pitiful it would have been for Jesus just just to have died and there was no resurrection fulfilling the scriptures. Then who cares about his birth date? 
Who cares about the rapture? Because it all hinged on this one thing, prophesied hundreds of years, even a few thousand years in advance. The resurrection is the capstone. Granted, the crucifixion is extremely important. Don't want to underestimate that. Because that's where our sin was paid for, once and for all. No doubt about that. There's no controversy here. But of the two, if Jesus just claimed to die, but didn't rise from the grave, according to what the Scriptures had foretold, then we're wasting our time. Then we're here today, and we should be out golfing. We should be skiing. We should be doing something. So why then is the resurrection more significant even than the crucifixion? Well, Paul gives us the answer in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read a lot of 1 Corinthians 15 this morning because I would encourage you to get very acquainted with that chapter because it is all about the resurrection, why it happened, the the type of body we're going to receive. I mean, it goes on and on about the the, the, the prophecies and why it was necessary. But notice what Paul says. Here is the answer why the crucifixion, or why the resurrection, excuse me, is even more significant than the crucifixion. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some say among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And here it is, verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, hear this, <clears throat> excuse me, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith also is empty, yes. And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. (laughs) That puts it right to, brings it in perspective, doesn't it? The resurrection. If he didn't rise again, then we are wasting our time. But he did rise. This is why it's so significant. Because he goes on in verse 20, he says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of them who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Notice, Christ, the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ that is coming. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Think of all the people here. You know, you've been baptized. If you were just baptized into his death, but not into his newness of life, into his resurrection, there's really nothing for us then. It is all about this event, this resurrection. 
Why then are the baptized? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Excuse me. I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If I, in the manner of men, have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, then let us eat. For tomorrow we drive. We die. Let us eat and drink. Let us let's party. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not what you, excuse me, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Now, this portion of the scripture in, in Corinthians is, is important because there's a lot of misunderstanding about the body that Jesus had and the body that you and I are going to have at the rapture of the church. Jesus was the first fruits, and then we will be raptured as well. We will be resurrected. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we, which are alive and remain, will be given a new body. And notice, he says, all flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men and another flesh of animals, another of fish and another of birds, and we're all very aware of that. We eat them on our dinner table. (laughs) But there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, and you and I have terrestrial bodies. They're made of the earth. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. And there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. Another glory of the stars, for one differs from one, one star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. And it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And there is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, obviously speaking of Adam. The second man, speaking of Jesus, is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of the dust, so also are those who are made of the dust, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. The miracle of the resurrection was the proof of Jesus' power over the grave. Even the prophets attested to that. In Hosea, God says through the prophet, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will Redeem them from death. I will purchase them back from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. And this verse that we just read is continued on in our passage in Corinthians, which let's finish with. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Again, and just to pause here for a second, we're not able to stand in the presence of God with this body that is susceptible to sickness and death. 
No, when Jesus resurrects us as he was resurrected, we too will be given a new body. And the Bible tells us that there'll be no more death. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more coronavirus or any variant thereof. There'll be nothing. (laughs) We'll be in the image of God and our body will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And he goes on and he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot, cannot, notice, inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Excuse me. Behold, I tell you a mystery, and here it is. We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die, because maybe we're in that generation, folks. Maybe we live, or maybe now we are in this generation that most of us, hopefully, wouldn't that be awesome? To be the generation that witnesses the rapture. That's what Paul means by not all of us are going to sleep. There's going to be people alive when the rapture occurs. But notice, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, this corruptible flesh that we currently have must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, and here it is, he's quoting Hosea 13 verse 14, or is it 14 verse 13? 13 verse 14, and here it is, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work, your labor in the the Lord is not in vain. And so this is what happened to Jesus, and this is our blessed hope as well. Awesome. So why is the resurrection even more significant than the rapture? Well, it's fairly easy, isn't it? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, neither will we. We just read that he was the first fruits of the the resurrection. If he didn't rise, then we are wasting our time. Again, we'd be wasting our time. But let me ask you a question this morning. How has the resurrection of Jesus affected your life? How has, he, how has that affected your life? And hopefully much. Hopefully it's changed you completely. As it's changed me, my passions are very different than, when, than the passions I had before Christ. When I gave my heart to Christ... Everything changed. Have you given your heart to Christ? Is your life now demonstrating what Jesus paid for? Is he getting what he died for? And no, I'm not talking about some kind of justification of your own works, but rather how we've responded to this gift of salvation, this gift of soon resurrection. How have we replied to that? How has our life demonstrated as a result of that? In Philippians, it says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my absence only, but now much more in my absence. And he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God. Notice, 
You know, most people, when they quote this, this scripture, they say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But you have to remember verse 13, because it's God who works in you. You don't have to work it out of your own, in your own flesh. You can't do it in your own flesh. You work out what he has already worked in. Why? Because it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Because of the presence of the Spirit of God in me, now I work that out. I do that in very practical things in my life. I turn away from certain things. I, I, I love people and I show that love by action. I don't just say I love you, I prove it. Didn't Jesus prove his love when he laid his life down on the cross? He proved it. It wasn't just a bunch of empty words. He says, I'm going to prove my love. Greater love has no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he calls you and I. Isn't that great to be called a friend of God? But we work out what God has already put in us. And you know, as we think about Jesus being crucified on the Passover, isn't it interesting that the Passover in Exodus 12, it talks about something really significant. And don't miss this because this is important. Even back in the Old Testament in Exodus 12, what happened first? The, the, the seven-day feast of unleavened bread where they would go and they would search out leaven, any yeast, any leaven in their house. They, they would have fun with the, the have kids, uh, kids games to find anything like leaven or bread or any crumbs, anything like that. And they would scour the house to look for it. And leaven is always a symbol of sin. And they would do that for seven days. But even in the Old Testament, what happened first? The Passover lamb was sacrificed. And then the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And why is that significant? Because man likes to earn his own salvation. He likes to have something to do with it. But what did the Bible tell us? The lamb was sacrificed, and then as a result of that sacrifice, then we put those things behind us, and we take those things, and we search out the closet, so to speak. It didn't happen the other way around. Otherwise, we would have something to boast in. Well, I've cleaned up my act. I've, I've, I've stopped smoking. I've stopped doing drugs. I, I no longer have illicit relationships with other people. And now as a result of that, because I've done my homework and I've done my part, Jesus, you do your part. No, it wasn't that at all. When he said it's finished, that means it's finished. It means the price was paid right then. And then afterwards, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they searched out and they cleaned the they cleaned the, the house and they looked for any sign of sin. And see, the same is true in the New Testament. Christ, the Passover lamb, has been crucified. And because of that, as a result of that, then I put away all those things, the malice, the hatred, the wrath, the anger, all these lustful, awful, horrible things that we do as human beings. As a result of that, then I'm working on these things, but I'm not doing it alone because the Spirit of God is in me to give me strength to resist those things and to turn away from those things. Are you in that place? Have you recognized that in your own life? I hope you have because I'm very much aware of my own sin in my own life. And I think as we get closer to Jesus, as we get closer even to the end before the rapture, I'm very much aware. We are becoming more aware of just our shortcomings. But listen, the price has been paid. Set yourself free and, and, and don't come at this 
this walk with Jesus as something that you, certainly we are indebted to him. There's no doubt about that. But he has done all the work for us. Now we can rest in that work, that finished work that he did for us. We can rest in it and now we can practically walk every day and just enjoy the ride Enjoy the relationship. Enjoy the process of sanctification. Are you enjoying it? Or are you like that dog that's being dragged when the owner takes it and you got this big, you know, golden retriever who's just got the feet out like that and you see this person trying to drag the dog? I don't want to be like that dog. I want to be a, a, a viable participant. I want to be a willing participant on the wheel that God has put us on. He's molding and shaping you like a potter. Are you willing to be shaped? Or are you say, you know what, I've already done my thing. I, I've gotten to a point in my life where I'm done. I don't have to do anything else. Well, you know what? If you're at that place, you're going to be a miserable person because until the moment that Christ comes for us, we are all in this place of sanctification and we are all in this place of being molded and shaped. And are you still willing to be molded and shaped or are you set in your ways? Are you set so much in your ways that you say, I've, I've done this and I'm going no further. This is just who I am. This is my personality. And I'm not letting you do anything more, Lord, than this. And I'm just going to sit here on my couch and read my Bible until you come. And you know what? You're going to go to heaven. <laughs> He's not going to take that away from you. But you are going to miss out on so much. You're going to miss out on a life isn't our life here worth something as well? Isn't our life here meaningful? Doesn't God want you to use your life to glorify him? Of course he does. And it is a joy to serve Jesus. It's a joy to serve him. It's a joy to give my life away. It's a joy to help others, to love others, to give them the truth that you and I have been so freely given and to give that away, to give it away. Don't be like the Dead Sea where you're always receiving, 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 and nothing is being given out. You're just stagnant and dead. I want to be like the Sea of Galilee where the fresh water, it's beautiful there. If you come to Israel next year, and Lord willing, if we go, you'll swim in that lake, and it is fresh water. It's beautiful. It gets all of its nutrients from Mount Hermon and all the snows and all the tributaries coming into it. And then it gives it out through the Jordan Valley to all those farmers down in the lower south part and then finally gets landlocked in the Dead Sea. Nothing is alive down there. It's all dead. Ah, but the Galilee is teeming with life. Teeming with life because it's allowed to receive and it's willing to give. And see, that's what we need to do as Christians. We cannot just be an island somewhere and hold up somewhere. We must be actively pursuing Christ and letting him use your life. Do you want to be used? I want to be used. And don't get me wrong. You know, the Bible says that for by grace you've been saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. We've been saved by grace through faith. It is not uh, and not of ourselves because it is a gift. Salvation is a gift and not of works lest any man should boast and that we would put away all those things. In Colossians, we're not going to go in there, but in Colossians it talks about putting away the wrath and the malice and then putting on the new man, which is Christ Jesus, putting him on daily. How do you do that? You just realize that he is in you. The Spirit of God is in you and then you put him on in a sense. You remember who you are, Christian. You remember what you've been purchased for. And you remember who he is. He wants to give you a new life. 
Let's look now at chapter uh, 20, verse 1. Notice. Now on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, and while it was still dark, and, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so our, our Gregorian calendar that we currently have, look at the calendar. Notice that your calendar starts on Sunday, and it goes through Saturday. Why is that? Because Sunday is the first day of the week. It was so significant, even based on what we have in the Word of God, it was so significant that they started the day on Sunday. Your work week doesn't begin on Monday. It begins today. Today is the beginning of the week. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose on this day, on the first day of the week, Sunday. That's why we have Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And Mary Magdalene, this woman who Jesus delivered seven demons from, remember, she was the first woman who was delivered from, or actually, excuse me, saw Jesus. And, and, and her name literally means Mary of Magdala. Magdala is, is right there where, uh, next to the place where, the, when we go to Israel, we stay at this place called Nof Ginnisar, right on the western shore of the Galilee, and literally we can look outside our window and see all of this area right here, and that's Magdala. Mary of Magdala, that's where she was born, that's where she lived. And it's a beautiful, lush place. That's where Mary came from, this was the area. In Matthew 28 and Mark 16, in the first couple of verses, they tell us that she wasn't alone when she came to the tomb either. There were other women at the tomb as well. And we find that out in, uh, in the other Gospels. And there was Mary, certainly the mother of James, the less, and Joses. She's the wife of Alphaeus. He's often known as Clopas or Cleopas. We know that Salome was there, who was the mother of of James and John the Apostles, and a Joanna. Well, I don't know who Joanna is, but she was there. And other women. And by the time the women had gotten to the tomb to put the spices and the fragrant oils on Jesus' body, I mean, think about this. Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea had already packed Jesus, his whole body, with 100 pounds of this ointment of myrrh and aloes, and, and they wrapped him in strips of cloth. And now they're going to come and anoint the body again. These women, not knowing what had happened, they show up on the scene and they find that the stone was rolled away. And was the stone rolled away because they needed to, uh, so that Jesus could get out? No, the stone was rolled away so that we could go in there. So that Mary could peek in there. So that Peter and John could look in and see what they saw. And it's recorded for us in this gospel. A very significant detail, I believe. But it was rolled away so that we could see that there's nobody left in the tomb. In fact, you go there today and by, it's still empty. It's still empty. His resurrection body passed through the rocks. He had already passed through the rocks passed through the cloths that he was in, passed through the rocks before the angel came and sat on top of that tomb and rolled it away. And all the soldiers who were guarding that tomb were freaking out. They were like dead men, the Bible says. Very possibly they even fainted when they saw the sight of the angel come right on top of the tomb, blow the door away, and there they are just 
wetting themselves. <laughs> I'm sure some of them probably did. Never seen anything like that before. No, no one has seen anything like that. <clears throat> now between verses 1 and 2, here in John, Luke 24, verse 10, tells us that the women, uh, these women who were at the tomb that morning, they first told the 11 disciples, and after they did, then, uh, then Peter and John ran to the tomb. Excuse me, so verse 2, it says, Then she ran. And she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? It's John, yes. And said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. And Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. You know, it's John's gospel. Doesn't he have the right to boast a little bit? I love the fact, the camaraderie that these two men had. I mean, they, they were brothers, and, and there was a little bit of competition between them, and you can see it in here, and I, and I love the fact that this is here. Only John's gospel tells who outran Peter, and it was John. But he was humble enough to say the other disciple, but we all know who the other disciple is. It's John and he, John, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths, underlying cloths, please, because that is significant. And yet he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came in, and he followed him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths, plural, lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Now these details, uh, verses 5 through 7, but especially verse 7, are unique only to John's gospel. No other gospel has these details. And does this sound like something that you would expect if the disciples were stealing the body? Would they go up to Jesus' body in the tomb and they would, um, because the guards are guarding it, by the way, and they got a whole bunch of them are out there, do you think they're going to somehow get into the tomb and go, um, you know, let's just unwrap his head real quick. And they, they unwrap his head and they fold it up in a, in a nice little napkin. Let's make this look nice because we are, you know, ambassadors. We want to do this nicely, de- decently and in order. No, they, they, they put it over there and then they grab, no. If they were stealing the body with guards, you better believe it's going to be like a black ops kind of thing. They're going to come in, swoop in. They're going to take out those guards. They're going to grab that body, roll away the stone, and they're going to be in a hurry to get out of there. But is that what the scene portrays as some quick snatch and grab of Jesus' body? Nope. It says quite the opposite. Someone took the time to take the wrapping off his head. Jesus passed. The, The language here suggests that he literally, his body passed through the cloths. And being able to pass through physical things is not an, a, a, an unusual thing for Jesus. We see him doing it more than a couple times in the Gospels after his resurrection. So he passed through, and his body was not left behind, but he was transformed into his resurrection body. So let me ask you a question. The Shroud of Turin, that so much money has been spent on, so much investigation. I've actually got a book in my office about that thick, about that they studied the composition of, the, of, of this whole thing, and they've looked at it, they've, you know, they looked at the materials, they went into great detail, and all they had to do was read what you and I have just read. Verse 7 of John chapter 20 puts an end to it all. It could have saved everybody a lot of money, saved them a lot of R&D, 
They, they, they could have just read the scripture because the Shroud of Turin is a four, roughly a four foot in a, a width and 14 feet long. And it has this picture of, of what they think is Jesus. And there's been a lot of tension given to this thing. People have worshipped it. They've venerated it. They've adored it. It's become a, um, a trinket. <laughs> and yet, in verse 7, now I want you to look at this. I'm going to read John 5 through 7 again, and I want you to tell me, is it real or is it fake? Of course, you know the answer now, right? I've already, spoiler alert, right? But notice, look at this single cloth. It's a single cloth, and it says, And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths, plural, lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths, lying there, and the handkerchief that was around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. As you look at this thing, is it a fraud or is it real? Of course it's a fraud. The scripture just told us it was. And with all of heaven on your shoulders, at your disposal, you can say that is a fraud. Because of what the scripture said. No PhD, no scholar, religious organization, or denomination can say to the contrary. If you want to worship it, go ahead. If you want to venerate it, go ahead. Don't know what that's all about, but it's not Jesus. Why? Because the Word of God tells us something different. There are many resources that can really bolster your faith in the inerrancy and the inspiration of the Bible. And I want to encourage you to get them. If you don't have uh, some of these books, I would encourage you to get them. Uh, Josh McDowell has a couple of books, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There's two volumes. I think now it's in one volume. Uh, those are really great resources to read. If you're wondering about the, the veracity of the, the truth of what the Bible has to say concerning the, the, the Bible itself and the things that are in it, these two things should put that to rest for you. I mean, not that just you know scholarly reading, and this is really not hard reading, honestly. Both of these books are really well done, and they've been around for a long time. But if you have any doubts... Why not get them? Uh, we don't, I don't think we have any in our bookstore because I didn't prepare to have them sent here. But there's also a couple other good books. One is by Lee Strobel called uh, The Case uh, for Christ and Scrolls and Stones by Charlie Campbell. These are both great resources. So there's no reason that we can't have an assurance of these things. So notice back in our text in verse 8. So then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and noticed he believed. He saw and he believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And that really encourages me. We've already looked at this before. But I think of where these men are. Here they are, the, the very disciples, the apostles, and, and two of them go into the tomb and they didn't really understand what was happening. Yet Jesus told them on three occasions at least, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. But hey, I'm going to rise again on the third day. He told them that on at least three different occasions. And yet now when we come to it, they see and they believe, yet they're still not quite there. And I'm glad that the scripture has that in there because I realize that I'm not, 
you know, I, I, I'm in good company. See, you and I have a great treasure in our lap right now. The Word of God. All they had was the Old Testament. And they didn't walk around like this with the New Testament. You know, they didn't have it walking around and saying, you know, I've got the whole New Old Testament. Yeah, all of it. All 39 books right here. Yeah. They didn't have any of that. I mean, they had it, but they couldn't carry it around like this. Those scrolls were in the synagogues. They, they, didn't, you know, they went to synagogue to read what was written. Only the wealthy had a scroll or two or three. But you and I, we have not only the Old Testament, all of it, but the New Testament. Even on our phones we have it. What a blessed people we are, right? We are. We're blessed. But they didn't understand the significance. And does the Old Testament... Does it tell us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It certainly does. We know that in Genesis chapter 22, the account of where Abraham attempted to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah, uh, which is currently the Temple Mount in Jerusalem right now, God intervened, remember, and uh, gave him a substitute, a lamb to replace his son. And Hebrews tells us in chapter 11... <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up his son Isaac, who had, uh, and, who, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, And Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which we also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham knew that what was happening on, the, on, on that Mount Moriah as he was attempting to put his son to death and a substitute now, a ram who had been caught in a thicket with its horns was substituting in place of his son. He knew right then that if I had to put my son to death and, and God allowed me to go through that he would have to raise him from the grave. And he received the gospel in a figurative type and he knew that another father several thousand years down the road in time, would offer his son on the altar, but this time there would be no other lamb to substitute it because he would be the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. He is the Passover lamb. And Abraham knew this. Even in Job, what does it tell us in Job? For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. In what flesh? In a different kind of flesh, certainly. But even Job knew that even after he dies, that he, that in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Does your heart yearn within you to be resurrected, to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, as it tells us in First Thessalonians 4? To be raised. I remember many years ago, I had a dream of that. It was right after I got saved. And I can't describe to you. Really didn't plan on bringing that up, but... Um, But notice the next couple of verses on our screen here. Because as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when they wrote these two prophecies that I'm going to read to you, King David had already been dead about 400 years. And they were prophesying of 
David's resurrection in a period of time that is even yet future to us today. Let me read to you Jeremiah 30. It says, Alas, for that day is great, so that there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, speaking of the great tribulation period. But he shall be saved out of it, for it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no longer enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God. And notice, David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. What? Think of in history when he's saying this. Jeremiah is saying this about a thousand years, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, about 400 years after David had already died. And now he's prophesying that David is going to be raised again in the millennium? Yes. And the root of David has already resurrected, Jesus Christ, but it spoke of the resurrection spoke of the resurrection. And Ezekiel, it goes on concerning this, and I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant, David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant, David, a prince among them. Yes, David, risen in the millennium. God is going to give him a special place. And so when we look at now Psalm 16, it's probably the most, one of the most significant psalms concerning the resurrection. Because in verse 9 of that, it speaks of, verses 9 through 11, I believe, speak of not only Jesus' death, but his resurrection and his ascension. If we look at verse 9 of Psalm six, 16, excuse me, we see that it speaks of his death, and it says it very clearly. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh shall also rest in hope. Yes, he would be crucified. And then verse 10, his resurrection. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or the grave, or Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He would only be there for three, three days. His body wouldn't even start to decompose yet. Fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees when he said to them, when they said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And verse 11 of Psalm 16 speaks of the ascension. Because after he had been resurrected, it says in verse 11, you will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. You can't be in somebody's presence while still being dead. The resurrection Isaiah 53, verse 1 through 9, speaks of his crucifixion, but in verse 12 it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. God's going to, and has given him, divided him the spoil after the crucifixion. Back in our text, says, Then the disciples, verse 10, went away again to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Have you ever been so distraught and so heartbroken? Can you imagine what she must have felt like? 
I mean, have you, have you lost a spouse, a, a, a mother or a father, or God forbid, a child and the heartbreak that you have over that? Mary is thinking that her Savior, the one who delivered her from these, this demonic oppression and demonic possession, is gone. And she's weeping, and she's looking down in the tomb, and she saw two angels sitting in white. Notice, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Now what does that remind you of? Where the body of Jesus was. The Bible, you know, he is the mercy seat. The high priest would come in once a year, and they would draw and drop blood right in the center of that, between the cherubim, looking down upon the mercy seat. He is the mercy seat, and there those two angels were at the place where he was, one of them here and one of them there, and they're looking down as Mary looks in, and and that should have given her a picture of what this was all about. Yes, all those stuff in the Old Testament was a picture. It was a type showing us these things that were yet future to us. And they all find their fulfillment in Jesus. The two angels. You can read about it in Exodus 25. So then they said to her, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus, partly maybe because of grief, but partly because his resurrection body was a little bit different than what his other body had been. There's, there was enough difference, and, and Jesus was able to evidently change that appearance to some extent. It, it seems in the scripture, in the book of Acts, he appeared to them in a different form, and so, but his scars and his wounds were the same. They were still there. Proof that he had died on the cross. But Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she's so distraught, she doesn't realize that it's him. And whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Doesn't love do some crazy things? Mary, are you able to grab Jesus? I mean, I can't imagine she was like an Amazon, you know, an Amazon woman, like, you know, Wonder Woman or something. Is she going to pick up Jesus? I mean, see, isn't that crazy? That's what love does, though. When love has taken over a heart, it will do anything. And it thinks it can do anything. And I love that. I love that. There's like, when you really love, there seems to be no obstacle. And I believe that's why Mary was saying that. There was no obstacle. Her frame was much smaller than Jesus. And yet with 100 pounds of ointment and all the wrappings, not to, not to mention his own body weight, her heart was so filled with love. She's like, you know what? I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to grab him and I'm going to flip him over my shoulder and I'm going to walk <laughs> and I'm going to take him away. And I can imagine Jesus, as he's hearing her say this, he's just grinning. And then he says, Mary... And he says it in a way where he's probably told her a hundred times before the same thing, Mary. And probably his voice was undisguised. We don't really know what happened, but all of a sudden she's like, Rabbi? Rabboni? Teacher? Is that you? 
She was so enthralled. And he said, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. We know that Jesus was on the earth for 40 days after his resurrection. And he was seen by these people, his disciples, Mary Magdalene first, then the other disciples, and then up to 500 at once, it tells us in Corinthians. And then 40 days later, he ascended from the Mount of Olives, right opposite the Temple Mount. And the Bible says that as he ascended, the disciples looked as he, a cloud received him out of their sight, and they said, he's coming in like manner when he returns. And where does Zechariah tell us when Jesus comes back in his second coming? Not the rapture, but the second coming. Where does he come? Where does he set his feet down? On the Mount of Olives. That same location, the same place that he went up is the same place he's going to come back to. Love that. So let me ask you, what mark has Jesus' death and resurrection had on you? Has it changed your life? What has he purchased? He's purchased us. He's put his down payment. He, put, he has put the earnest of his spirit. That's what earnest means, is a down payment. He's put that in us by the spirit of God, in us. And then when he returns for us at the rapture, he's going to redeem fully us bodily. He's going to take purchase, he's going to take possession of what he has purchased. There used to be a time when you couldn't just put a down payment on something and walk out with it. There were days when you put a down payment on something and you continued to pay. You put an earnest down, you put a down payment down, and then you continued to pay monthly or whatever schedule you're on until you finally paid for the thing and then you can walk in and take it home with you. Jesus has put the earnest of his spirit within us and he is coming back to redeem you bodily. He's going to change you bodily and boy, we're going to receive, we're going to look great. You're going to look great. And if you're feeling tonight or feeling this morning, hey, I'm not so great, well, guess what? You're going to be great then. You're going to receive a new body. No more hip replacements. No more knee replacements. No more CAT scans to find out if there's cancer in my lungs. No more, none of this stuff anymore. You're going to be brand new. And folks, that's what we have to look forward to. That's the resurrection. That's what gives us the hope. Because he rose from the grave, we read it in Corinthians earlier in 15, chapter 15, that because he rose, we will also raise with him. He was the first fruits. And then at the rapture, we are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That's what's coming for us. I don't know about you, but I'm excited. I can't wait. There's nothing in the world that I want more than that. Today, right now, I don't want to wait. I don't know about you, but now would be a really good time. Wouldn't that be something? You think there's chaos now. What happened? Can you imagine in the midst of our chaos right now, millions of people just... I wonder, and I, and I kind of, because I'm a sick individual, I almost, I almost hope that maybe our shoes would be left. Maybe even our clothing would be left in a pile. It would just fold down upon itself. And right, right on my, 
you know, shoes. And it would just fall down and we'd be gone. And everyone is looking around. They're seeing the same thing. This must be a conspiracy. I know what it was. Aliens abducted them. Aliens did it. They're no longer here. All they see is these pile of clothes everywhere. People in their walks of life, driving a forklift, driving a pickup truck, driving a semi-truck, sitting in their office, sitting in a meeting with their boss, all of a sudden, clothing just falls. I would love to see the clothing just, I mean, that would just be a lot of fun. I don't know if the Lord will do that. Maybe he'll just evaporate the clothes and, and take us and it'll be, everything will be invisible. There'll be no trace left behind. That's fine too, but I kind of would like to have just the clothing there just to, just, just to show everybody. And it's the same pile everywhere you go. It just kind of folded in upon itself. And people are like, what happened here? And then somebody's going to open the Bible and says, wasn't this written? Let's go and look in Psalm 16, verse 10. Let's go in 1 Thessalonians 14, or 4, excuse me, verses 13 through 18. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. Let's read that again. That's what happened. Let's read Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read what's coming in Revelation 19. Has he changed your life? Has the resurrection changed you? It has. It has changed, whether you want to admit it or not. So if you continue to press in, if it has changed your life, then continue to press in nearer to Jesus, giving him your whole life. Don't be afraid of anything. He's got you, and he's got, he's, he's got it under control. But if it hasn't changed your life yet, then you still need to be born again. Confess your sins. And receive Christ. Give your life to him and begin this wonderful walk in the spirit with him. And, don't, and this walk is not going to be easy, is it? It's not going to be easy. Has it been easy for you thus far? No, it's been one of the most challenging things in my life. But yet, it's been the most glorious thing that's ever happened to me. And I can't imagine the boring life I would have if I hadn't given my heart to Christ. Think of how boring your life would be if you didn't know Christ. And all you had was, well, I, just, I, I worked my 30 years at Kodak or whatever, and I retire, and then I, you know, I retire to somewhere south where it's warm so I can go fishing and play golf. And then, and then there's a tumor, and then i got to get that taken out. And then I'm on chemo and radiation. And then finally, finally, I just die. That sounds like a great life. No. It's so much better than that. So much better than that. Are you living that life? Are you allowing that life to capture your heart and your mind? Let's live lives that prove what he did and give him all that he has purchased. Let's give it all to him. Give him your life. Notice I didn't say give him your money. I mean, you can give him. It's good for us to give, but I didn't say money. I said give him your life. Your life is more important than anything else. Who cares about the money? But he wants you. He wants me to live and to be disciples of his. And if, is, it, is it easy to share something that has changed your life? It is. Maybe we need to return back to that first love that we had with Christ when we first got saved. Remember that day? 
Remember that period in your life when you were just completely on fire and you tried to tell everybody and nobody would listen? They were looking at you like cats testing for new eyes. And, and yet it was the most important thing in the world to you. What happened to me? What happened to you? Has the way the world has responded to the gospel, has it been like a water over a flame? I think it has. But let's ask the Lord to fire us up again and give us just a renewed sense of what his resurrection did for us and the resurrection life that he wants to continue to give us and to just make us alive for him. Right now, folks, is our time. It's our season. And this, I believe it with all of my heart, in this time, in this period of history, you and I need to come out of our shells You and I need to get serious about who he is and about what he's done and what he wants to do through us. Do you want to know what it is? Do you desire it? I desire it. Even now, I want it. I want it, Lord. Would you please help me? Remove the fear. Remove whatever it is that's keeping me from from not doing what you want me to do. Don't wait. You don't have time. You don't have time. It is high time that we arise out of our slumber. It is high time that we rise to our feet and be more vocal than we've ever been in love, in grace, and compassion. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. (laughs) Hmm. Lord, we just thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you love us with an everlasting love. And Lord, I pray... Lord, I know there have been times in in my life where I've just felt dull, honestly. And I know that I'm not alone. I know that everyone here has experienced that. Maybe even going through that time right now where they just sense, I know I'm saved, but I'm just kind of like floundering and I'm just feeling like, I don't even know what I feel, Lord. Lord, would you please encourage our hearts today? And Father, I pray for any hearts that don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would give their heart to you completely, 100%. And Lord, for those of us who have known you for some time and have perhaps, Lord, gotten lazy and perhaps have gotten complacent, Lord, perhaps have gotten cold, Lord, would you, by your Spirit, help us today? Would you fill us with your Spirit and give us the light of Christ again? Give us that unction. Give us that desire. Fill us, God. How we need you, Lord. And I thank you that you love all of us so much. You love us, God. And you're not angry with us. But I know, Lord, you desire more from me. That I'm withholding from you. And I pray for anyone here this morning that is feeling the same way that we would just very simply ask, Lord, you, would you take up more real estate in my life today, right now? Right now, Lord, not tomorrow, but right now. We need you, Jesus, in this time, right now. Lord, bless and hear the prayers of my brothers and sisters and myself included. Would you do a brand new work? Would you light us on fire again? 
In your precious name we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.